Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Evans, Colorado. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Today's episode comes down to one thing. Ashley Fallis was shot to death in the early morning hours of January 1st, 2012, after a New Year's Eve party with her family and friends. Initially, her death was ruled a suicide, but years later, someone was charged with murder. So let's dive into the details of this case so you can decide if you agree with the outcome. Ashley Fallis was one of those people that loved you the moment they met you. The kind of person that takes you as you are and makes you feel seen. She was friendly and bubbly, but she was also deep and empathetic. Back in high school, she dated one guy pretty seriously, and when you're young and in love, it feels like that's it. There's no way there's anyone else out there for you. So shortly after she graduated, Ashley and her high school sweetheart got married and started planning the rest of their lives. Ashley continued her education, but before long, she was pregnant. Her and her husband welcomed a perfect little princess into the world, and before long after that, there was a second. Ashley and her husband were a family of four now, but they were so young and honestly still growing up. Instead of growing together, they started growing apart, and eventually the two decided to part ways. As far as I can tell, the divorce wasn't wildly contentious or anything, more so the best move for both of them. At this point in Ashley's life, she was a single mom of two and she had a lot of wind in her sails. Ashley wasn't the type to sit around and wait for life to happen, so she doubled down, worked hard, and put all of her attention into her daughters until they could find what their new normal was. It didn't take too long for her to find that, and in time, she decided it was time to try her hand at dating. Dating was new to her since she had married her high school sweetheart. So what did everyone do back in 2007? She joined Match.com, the OG dating website before the cesspools of Tinder and Plenty of Fish entered the chat and took over. You had to pay to be on Match so you were less likely to fall into the trap of people just looking to hook up and more likely to find someone looking for a relationship. It was essentially the hinge of today, but that's enough of that. Let's get back to this case. In early 2007, Ashley was living her best online dating life when she matched with a man named Tom Fallis. 
He was a little older than her, six years or so, but there was something about that that was appealing. She was a single mom. She didn't have time for the immature bullshit that came with dating guys her own age, which was 23 at the time. She wasn't going to be meeting you at a bar on a Friday night. She wasn't going to be binge drinking with you and your buddies. And she certainly wasn't going to introduce your frat energy to her kids. So this Tom guy was on paper already checking some boxes. And she was checking boxes for him as well. According to an article on 5280.com by a reporter named Lindsay King, Tom's friends and family say that he was drawn to women he could save. And I'm not saying that's a red flag, but ma'am, no. You don't need to be saved, and there's no man in this world that's going to save you better than you can save yourself. So if some damsel retrieval specialist slides into your DMs, please feel free to ignore. Nonetheless, Ashley and Tom did hit it off in a way that was hard to watch for Ashley's parents. They fell fast and hard when it came to love, and their relationship moved forward at warp speed. So fast, in fact, that within just a few months, Ashley was pregnant. The one thing Ashley loved more than anything in this world was being a mother. So another pregnancy wasn't anything she was worried about. The biggest issue at the time was the fact that her parents weren't as confident in Tom's ability to be a good partner as she was. But they did what they could and supported Ashley in her choices, throwing in some advice when appropriate. In the end, she was an adult. She was supporting herself. And they knew above anything else, she would be a fantastic mother to this new baby. Ashley's pregnancy went off without a hitch, and nine months later, she and Tom welcomed a sweet little boy into their lives. Within one single year, the two of them became an instant family of five. Two weeks after giving birth, the two got married, but the proposal was less than romantic. In that article on 5280.com, Tom claims that he planned on cooking Ashley her favorite meal before proposing, but she couldn't wait. That she knew what he was up to when he was leaving to pick up the ring and insisted on going with him and then begged him to propose to her in the jewelry store parking lot. The fact that that story was even mentioned in the article felt so bizarrely out of place, and maybe it's because the following words were used to describe Ashley during the retelling. Persistent, assertive, and impulsive. It didn't come off as a cute part of their love story. It came off as if they were trying to imply she had ruined some grand plans that he had made because of personality flaws. Or maybe it was the fact that that little story was followed up with the information that following the birth of their son, Ashley decided to get her tubes tied without Tom's blessing. Something any woman is welcome to do because it's your uterus and you can inhabit it as you please. But it was certainly a point of contention in their relationship that would be brought up time and time again throughout the years. Tom blamed Ashley's mom for her decision to get her tubes tied, reminding her regularly that she listened to her parents too much. But maybe, just maybe, Ashley didn't want any more kids. Maybe she made an informed decision about her body and didn't want to run that by someone who was never going to have to grow a whole ass human and pop it out of a pinhole. My blatant angst aside, though, 
Ashley and Tom got through the tubal ligation of 2008 and made the most of their marriage. To say they didn't have fun would be a lie because if you look at Ashley's Facebook, there is an entire photo album dedicated to the adventures the two would go on. They did make time for date nights, whitewater rafting, and were obviously very affectionate towards one another. They looked at each other like they were soulmates, and regardless of their ups and downs, it's clear that the two had very big feelings for each other. Tom had worked some respectable odd jobs here and there, but knew it was time to really settle into a career, so he applied, trained, and officially became a corrections officer with the Weld County Sheriff's Office. To be clear, though, he was not a police kind of sheriff's deputy. He worked in the jail. As far as Ashley goes, she was a respiratory therapist. Ashley's parents were less than surprised that Tom picked a career that involved control and, based on his damsel preference, neither am I, but let's keep going. Even though they both had pretty stable jobs, it looks like finances might have been a struggle. I ran a report and it looks like Ashley may have filed for bankruptcy in 2009, while a second report indicated that Tom may have filed for bankruptcy in 2010. I hadn't seen that mentioned in any of the other research I did, but it would coincide with when Ashley and Tom found out that their son had hydrocephalus and had to undergo a fair amount of procedures and hospitalization. We all know that healthcare is expensive and medical bills are no joke, so the idea that they might have been struggling financially would not be a shock, but I think it was important for context to include this, knowing that the case will eventually come down to a trial debating suicide or murder. I'd love to say that there was a period of smooth sailing between Ashley and Tom, but I couldn't really pinpoint any point in time where that would be true. According to that 5280 article, Ashley had divorce papers drawn up as early as 2009, but Tom claims that he convinced her not to file. We know about the possible financial troubles that followed that year, but in 2010, things on paper seem like they might be looking up. Tom decided to officially adopt Ashley's two daughters from her previous marriage, which is a little interesting because when you research this case, you don't hear much about the girl's biological father at all. No tales about how they were yearning for their father figure they never had, or complaints from Ashley about deadbeat dads, just Tom deciding to adopt them and their father signing over his paternal rights. There's definitely a story there and I'd love to know more, but that's just not available. Around Christmas of 2011, Ashley felt funny. She had three kids and knew what it felt like to be pregnant, and something in her told her to take a pregnancy test. Sure, she'd had the tubal ligation, but they can fail or your body can heal itself and boom, you're able to get pregnant again. So she took a test just in case. According to Tom, that test was positive. Because of that, she stopped taking her medication. Like plenty of women and humans, she regularly saw a practitioner for her mental health and was worried that the medication she was on might negatively impact her pregnancy, so she stopped taking them. As far as I can tell, there was nothing in the direct following few days that indicated the stop in her medication had an immediate impact on her mental well-being, but what happened on January 1st puts all of that into debate. At least that's what one side of the story believes. On New Year's Eve of 2011, Tom claims that Ashley noticed some bleeding and came to the conclusion that she was having an early miscarriage. 
That can be devastating to any woman. But Ashley's mom told Dateline that she didn't really seem that bothered by it. Not because she was cold hearted or anything, but it seemed more so like she had gotten the tubal ligation because she decided she was done having children. And while a surprise fourth would be a welcomed addition, she wasn't devastated at the situation. On the contrary, family told 2020 that Tom did seem pretty affected by it. And it was very clear to them at that New Year's Eve party that Tom and Ashley hosted that night. A lot of outlets described the party as being small, but there were 15 to 20 people there. And in the Phallus's 1,400 square foot two-story house, that's a lot of people on the first floor. Nevertheless, it wasn't a rager, just 15 to 20 of their closest family, friends, and co-workers. And for the most of the night, everyone had a really good time. They ate, they drank, and at one point, Ashley and Tom danced together. Tom seems to have told 5280 that Ashley asked him to dance, but he said he wasn't going to dance to some random song. So he turned on their song and guest watched as the two had a rom-com moment. That's a really touching story, but the party stopped being a rom-com and went downhill fast. According to Ashley's mom, Tom was broing out about some fantasy football bullshit and she asked him to tone down the F-bombs since there were kids around. Did he tone that down? Well, according to her, absolutely not. She claims he responded with something along the lines of, fuck those kids, quote taken from a lawsuit, and according to Denver 7, that he could drop F-bombs whenever he wanted because those fucking kids woke him up every morning. The 5280 article claims that Tom denies that ever happened, but there were a lot of people there and the trajectory of that reaction does seem to match what was about to unfold. The night went on, the ball dropped, and at some point, Tom became aware that one of Ashley's family members had brought some weed. Tom was unhappy about this, but to be fair, he did work in law enforcement, kind of, and weed wasn't officially legalized in Colorado until November of 2012. He was pissed to say the least, but he got irate and explosive when he heard Ashley say that she was going out to smoke. He assumed that she meant weed and that threw him over the flat earth's edge. Dude lost his damn marbles and had a real housewife-sized temper tantrum. According to several different sources, including KDVR, 5280.com, Westworld, and Denver 7, Tom's next words to the remaining guests were, fuck you, fuck everybody, get the fuck out of my house, I hate you, and I wish you would all die. That last comment was not going to age well. He said all of that while storming up the stairs towards his bedroom and slamming the door behind him. If there was ever a moment where you could insert the sound of crickets, the moment after that door slammed was probably the moment it was made for. No one could understand how he had gotten to that level of anger over some weed, but Ashley didn't seem that surprised. Her mom told 48 Hours that she was more so like, there he goes again, that's Tom for you, which makes me really sad for her. While Tom wallowed in his self-inflicted timeout, Ashley apologized for his behavior, sent everyone off with hugs and kisses, and told them to pencil in a Super Bowl party for February. The last time any of them saw her alive was when she was waving them off on her front porch. What happened next can only be determined by the evidence and Tom Fallis' recollection, but within 10 minutes or so, Ashley was dead. 
He called 911 screaming, saying, my wife just shot herself in the head. Please help me. The audio is available online and it's pretty terrible. Whatever transpired in the few minutes before that call, which we'll obviously get into, there is no doubt that Tom was hysterical on that call. Tom dropped the phone while he says he was applying pressure to Ashley's wound, but the background noise never gets any less traumatic. At one point, you can hear that Ashley's daughter comes into the room and it's, it's really, really hard to listen to. At the same time that was happening, Ashley's family members were driving home from Ashley's house, but they were so concerned about Tom's explosive behavior that they had actually pulled over to the side of the road to process what had just happened. Ashley's mom sent a text to Tom at 12.46 a.m. asking him to cool down and get some sleep. It doesn't look like they saw these at the time, but according to a lawsuit filed later, Ashley's older daughter had emailed her grandparents from an iPad at 12.51, 12.52, and 12.53 saying, help, come here, help, and she got shot. They didn't need to see those emails, though, to know that something was wrong. While they were pulled over, they noticed flashing lights driving towards Ashley and Tom's house, and there was something in their gut that told them of all the homes in that direction, the first responders were going to Ashley's house. And they were right. Ashley's family got back on the road, turned around, and followed the first responders right to the Phallus's home and knew without a shadow of a doubt that something was very, very wrong. It was pure chaos, but they could see that there was blood on the wall and heard that Ashley had been shot. Tom was on another level that night, not just with Ashley and her family, but with responding officers as well. According to a lawsuit that was eventually filed, after first responders arrived, Tom went outside and was being aggressive, yelling that he was a Weld County CO2 and reportedly had to be threatened with a taser after coming at an officer aggressively and clenching his fists. It didn't end there, though. On body cam footage shown on 2020, you can hear Tom yelling at Ashley's parents saying, you wanted to get her fucking high. And according to Tom, they were already accusing him of murder. Telling 5280.com, they yelled, you killed her, you fucking shot her. The only fact available at this point was that Ashley had been shot in the head. But through some kind of miracle, she was still alive. Her wound was so bad, though, she'd been shot through her right temple, that EMTs couldn't waste time on any one particular life-saving measure. They just needed to get her to a trauma hospital fast. They band together, lifted her by her arms and legs, carried her out of the house, and sped away, leaving law enforcement to process the scene and interview witnesses, while everyone else had to wonder what in the actual fuck they were supposed to do next. Tom was, of course, taken to the station for questioning, and this is where things get really interesting. At some point, KDVR reports that Tom texted a jail colleague saying, police are trying to say I killed my wife, and, well, you can be the judge of that. While no one bothered to bag his hands to preserve any gunshot residue that might have been on them, 
they did put him through some intense questioning. In the Dateline episode after the party, you can watch as the detective works to build a rapport with Tom. She plays dumb, saying that she doesn't know anything about what's going on, and that's why she's questioning him. The goal of an interrogation like this is going to be to get him to commit to a story, then walk him through the details countless times to see what changes. The detective started out by asking about how his and Ashley's marriage was, and Tom said that it was really good. The divorce papers that were found on the dresser in his and Ashley's bedroom would suggest otherwise, but what do I know? When it comes to the argument that led up to the shooting, 48 hours footage shows Tom saying, you don't need to get high. I was like, if whatever happened today with the miscarriage, I was like, it happened. I was like, you know what? Fuck your mom. Fuck everybody. Let it go. And yes, you heard that right. He told her to let it go. Eventually, everyone left, and the way Tom describes Ashley makes it seem like she was an angry Kramer. Like, all of a sudden, after putting the kids to bed, she just burst into their room ready to spit fire, saying she could do whatever she wanted and could get high if she wanted to. Tom, who claims to have been in the walk-in closet getting changed at the time, says that he essentially told her to do whatever she wanted, but added in the 5280 article that she should do it because she wanted to, not just because her family wanted her to, because we already know that Tom doesn't seem to think Ashley can make a decision for herself. While Tom was in the closet, he said that he heard the sound of a gun cocking, that he looked out and asked her what she was doing, and that's when he saw her kind of low to the ground on the other side of the bed with a gun to her head. Before he could register any of it, he says she shot herself. Tom claims that he ran over to her, grabbed her head, lowered her to the floor, and called 911. Now, the detective in this interrogation argued that there was no way Ashley could have shot herself in the back of the head, but Ashley was not shot in the back of the head. That moment induced one hell of a reaction from Tom as he yelled bullshit over and over and slammed his water bottle on the table. He was certainly not intimidated by this situation or the fact that he was talking to law enforcement. And while this detective was incorrect about where Ashley's gunshot wound was, there were some strange findings at the scene that may or may not bring his version of events into question. Ashley was shot through her right temple, but based on court footage shown on 2020, her knees would have been facing her nightstand and the wall above that nightstand is where the bullet hit. If her knees were facing the wall, you would expect to find the bullet to the left side of her, but that's not what happened. It's as if her body would have had to have been twisted to face the closet that Tom was in, and that's certainly not impossible, but odd enough to be worth mentioning. While the bullet was found in the direction they believe her knees were facing, most of her blood seemed to be on the left side of the wall. The blood looked like an arterial spurt with an arch that would indicate a change in blood pressure, but why was it on the left wall and not the wall the bullet hit? I'm not going to pretend I'm a blood spatter analyst, but I will say that I was surprised at how high the blood was on the wall and how little there was on the carpet beneath her. If someone is shot in the head, you can usually expect them to immediately fall to the ground or floor in this instance, but the blood on the carpet below where Ashley was shot was very sparse. If I had walked into that room as a police officer and saw nothing but the blood, I would raise an eyebrow that someone was injured, but not gravely injured. 
In most cases where I'm looking at crime scene photos from gunshot wounds, I see pools of blood that soak through the carpet padding, but the amount of blood on the phallus's bedroom floor almost looked comparable to a bad nosebleed that had been smeared a little. So where did the blood go? Well, Tom had an awful lot of it on his shirt. We know he said that he ran to her and grabbed her head, so is it possible that he managed to stop most of her blood loss through pressure and what did leave her body wound up on his shirt? I guess it's possible, but it was definitely unusual. It was also unusual that framed pictures of the phalluses had been knocked off the wall, but Tom didn't indicate that there had been any kind of struggle. Frankly, he vehemently denied it, even when the detective told Tom that there was a witness, an ear witness. According to 2020, a teenage neighbor named Chelsea called another neighbor, an adult, and allegedly said, please tell me you called the police. Your neighbor just shot his wife. Prior to the gunshot, she reportedly heard a woman screaming, get off me, get off me, heard a man yelling, don't leave me, and a lawsuit states that she heard what sounded like a vase breaking or a crash. Tom vehemently denied that he was ever on Ashley, but what reason would Chelsea have to make that up? She didn't know about the heated argument between Tom and Ashley's parents. She certainly didn't know about the divorce papers found on the dresser and definitely wouldn't have known about the duffel bag pictured on Ashley and Tom's bed that night. Was Ashley trying to leave? Was Tom on her? If he was, it might explain some of the scratches the detective noticed on his neck chest, and forearm. When questioned about the scratch on his neck, Tom explained that it was probably from doing this all night and put his hands behind his neck and grabbed it. But the detective pointed out that the scratch was straight across, to which Tom assured her, it's nothing. Thank you for your vote of confidence, but no, sir. When she noticed the scratches on Tom's chest, he leveled up. You can watch this footage on the 2020 episode after midnight, but I shit you not, this dude lifted up his shirt and said, and I quote, do you see this? This is a shaved chest. He then filled the detective in on how itchy a shaved chest is and showed her how he scratches it all day. There are close-up photos of these scratches, and an itchy chest does not feel like it explains all of them, like the ones along his collarbone where there's little to no hair, or the one by his armpit where, again, there is little to no hair. And if he had just recently shaved, it must have just been some kind of trim because that had grown out a bit. There's no doubt that his chest was irritated, but you could plainly see where there was unhappy follicles. But wait, there's more. At one point during his chest hair chronicles, he lifted up his shirt and said, this is actually her blood as he starts picking at it and says, it comes off. Oh my gosh, it's coming off. It's her freaking blood. His bizarrely cavalier and sarcastic attitude about picking his wife's blood off of his chest was doing him no favors. When it comes to the gun, Tom told the interrogator that Ashley kept her gun, it was in fact her own gun, under the mattress on her side of the bed and that it wasn't usually loaded. Though it seems as though he told 5280 that she must have gotten it from her purse on the bed or nightstand. How that story changed from 2012 to 2017 when the article was published is beyond me, but that's where we are. I couldn't find her purse in any of the crime scene photos, just her duffel bag. There was mention of police finding her medication in her purse, but I certainly didn't see it on her bed or on her nightstand.
Tom wasn't the only one questioned about the events of that night. According to Denver 7, one of Ashley's daughters stated that she was playing on an iPad in her room with her cousin when she heard something and smelled something disgusting. She was reportedly reluctant to say that anything bad had happened, but eventually said that she saw the worst thing happened. According to KDVR, she allegedly stated that she saw Daddy getting the gun ready, and CBS reports that she allegedly stated she saw Daddy shoot Mommy. Though, according to the Greeley Tribune, she reportedly recalled the gun being pink, which it was not, and reportedly heard three shots, but there was only one. You might assume that we're kind of getting somewhere with this information, but frankly, we're not. After a couple of hours of questioning, Tom was released with no charges whatsoever. By the next day, January 2nd, a lawsuit states that a law enforcement commander told a local outlet that Ashley had killed herself. That article was quickly removed because, frankly, the investigation was not complete at that point. But on January 3rd, there was another article suggesting that Ashley's death appeared to be a suicide. Her death wasn't officially ruled a suicide until January 6th, but as you can imagine, Ashley's family was not on board with that. Everyone who had seen her that day commented on how great of a mood she was in, despite everything that was going on behind closed doors, namely the miscarriage that she thought she might be suffering. Though her autopsy concluded that she was not pregnant and hadn't been, at least in the last week. I know that's a little bit vague, but I think that was the medically correct way of them explaining that the hormones that would indicate she was pregnant were not present. Also absent from her lab results was any evidence that she had smoked marijuana. She did have some bruising on her leg below her knee, and while it's been loosely mentioned in the research that I went through, the bruises don't seem to be an injury that much attention has been put on. I only saw one publication that referred to the bruises as fresh, but I don't know that we can bank on that without more information. Over the next couple of months, scratch that, years, Tom carried on with his life as a single father. He left his job at the sheriff's office and eventually made the move all the way over to Bloomington, Indiana and enrolled in school. Things seemed to be as normal as they could be for him until a reporter got involved. According to an interview with 48 Hours, a reporter named Justin Joseph from Fox 31 got a call from a source with law enforcement who told him that something wasn't right about Ashley's case. Justin spent a year getting all of the documents, going through every single one of them and re-interviewing witnesses, and what he found was shocking to say the least. He found a next-door neighbor named Nick, who was a teen at the time, who claimed to have heard Tom confess to killing Ashley the night she was shot. He told Justin that he heard all of the commotion and obviously wanted to see what was going on, so he crouched below an open window. That's when he says he heard Tom say, Oh my God, what did I do? And I shot her. Nick claims that he told this to police, but Justin never saw it mentioned in any of those files. To make matters worse, when Justin spoke to Nick's mom, he learned that she was the adult that Chelsea had called that night. Remember, Chelsea had reportedly called a neighbor and said that their neighbor had just shot their wife. The neighbor she called was Nick's mom. The problem with this was that the police report stated that Chelsea said your neighbor just shot herself, which is a pretty big difference here. You'd assume they would have followed up with Chelsea since that's a huge fucking deal, but according to 48 Hours, no one ever did. 
though a lawsuit later added a little more detail about Chelsea's original statement, which included hearing a man saying, your fucking mom, your mom, your fucking mom, answer my fucking question. And like we mentioned earlier, Chelsea wouldn't have known that Tom was losing his shit over Ashley's mom that night. So all of those statements seem highly relevant in this situation. Reporter Justin Joseph took what he had found to the chief of police and they listened. KDVR quotes the chief as saying, This new information includes alleged eye and ear witness accounts that we were previously unaware of and are of a serious enough nature to warrant further investigation in this case. In April of 2014, Ashley's case was reopened and assigned to the Fort Collins Police Department for an unbiased review. The detective who had been accused of omitting or altering statements in the initial report was investigated by the Loveland Police Department, but according to CBS, they found no probable cause to charge him with any crime. That seems a little bit wild to me, but hey, we only know what we know. The bottom line here was that Ashley's family was being heard, her case was being given a thorough investigation, and that's all they had ever wanted. Seven long months passed, but in November of 2014, a grand jury was held where the prosecution presented their evidence and let a jury decide whether or not there was enough to proceed with charges. Grand juries are not open to the public, so we don't know what was said in that room, but whatever it was, the jury decided that there was enough evidence to proceed with charges. With a warrant for his arrest, police in Indiana headed to Tom's house and took him into custody without incident. He was charged with second-degree murder. For some context here, a second-degree murder charge in Colorado alleges that you knowingly caused the death of another person. The code goes on to specify, the act causing the death was performed upon a sudden heat of passion caused by a serious and highly provoking act of the intended victim affecting the defendant sufficiently to excite an irresistible passion in a reasonable person, but if between the provocation and the killing, there is an interval sufficient for the voice of reason and humanity to be heard, the killing is a class 2 felony. This was not a case where a probable cause report was made available where we could see a list of the reasons a judge decided there was enough evidence to charge someone. All anyone had to go on was the indictment. And the indictment was pretty short and lacking in many details. The indictment alleged that during a struggle in the master bedroom, Tom obtained a Taurus 9mm handgun, held it to the side of Ashley's head, and pulled the trigger. That while he was still in contact with Ashley, he lowered her to the floor, held her head, and called 911. It's essentially what half of the people following this case had already come to the conclusion of on their own, but the why was missing. What was the evidence? Was it the gunshot residue? Was it DNA under Ashley's fingernails? Was it the statements from the two ear witness neighbors? Nobody knew at this point, but something had changed and only a trial would tell. Tom ultimately pled not guilty and came up with the $25,000 he needed to make bond. The only problem was that even though he was out of jail, he couldn't get out of Colorado. A court document showed that he tried to appeal his bond conditions, claiming they were interfering with his ability to be a parent since his kids were in Indiana, but that didn't really work out in his favor. In the end, his bond conditions had nothing to do with his parenting, and he was welcome to communicate with them as much as he wanted. They could even come to Colorado. He just couldn't leave the state. So until trial, Tom was stuck back in Colorado. 
Before the trial, there was a three-day pre-trial hearing where both sides argued tooth and nail about what should or shouldn't be allowed in evidence. The two major topics that seemed to be most debated were people who were previously involved with either party. According to KDVR, Tom's ex-wife claimed that he abused her, and as it turns out, Ashley had had an affair with a guy that she had dated in high school. Both witnesses would work towards tearing down the character of the other party, but in the end, the accusations from Tom's ex-wife were not allowed in trial, but the facts regarding Ashley's affair were allowed. In March of 2016, Tom's trial began, and to be honest, it was hard to watch. Usually when I'm researching a case, I'm really confident in how I feel regarding the facts, but this one wasn't that simple. I know how I feel in my gut, but in full transparency, I'm missing some of the hard evidence that we're used to seeing in cases like this. You guys listen to cases like this every week, so I'm sure you're asking the same kind of questions I am at this point. Was there DNA under Ashley's fingernails? What are the gunshot residue results? I didn't mention this earlier, but there was blood on the gun found on the floor near Ashley's body, but the blood was visibly absent where a hand would have been holding it. We know that Tom was holding Ashley's head, so blood being on his hands wouldn't really prove or disprove anything. But what about Ashley's hands? Did they have blood spatter on them? Because if they didn't, I would have several follow-up questions. I was hoping that this trial would fill in a lot of those blanks, and while some questions were answered, you'll see why it still feels like there's something missing. Let's start with the DNA that was or wasn't under Ashley's fingernails. In court video from Dateline, the defense attorney states that Ashley's DNA was not found on Tom's chest. On the surface, that feels like a weird argument to make, but when you put on your defense attorney goggles, it tracks. Trying to get down to whether or not Tom's DNA was found under Ashley's fingernails is a different story. CBS wound up hiring someone to reconstruct the crime scene back in 2015, and it was then that they discovered that even though Ashley's fingernails had been collected, they had yet to be tested. This dude was hounded in the interrogation about the scratches on his chest after a neighbor claims to have heard a woman yelling, get off of me, before Ashley was shot, and not a soul felt bothered enough to find out whether or not Ashley had scratched him? The article detailing that fucking blunder didn't indicate what any of the results were, but a lawsuit filed later did. It said, and I quote, DNA samples have reportedly since been tested, and the results indicate that Mr. Fallis's DNA was underneath Mrs. Fallis's fingernails. That is certainly valuable information, but when you read the 5280 article that it seems Tom would have had to have participated in, it clearly states, and again, I quote, Tom's skin was actually not found underneath Ashley's fingernails. What is happening here? Then again, we, we do have to consider that that's the same article that stated Ashley got the gun from her purse on the bed or from the nightstand, and I didn't see any purse on the bed or nightstand, just that duffel bag that no one seems to be talking about. Tom said in his interrogation that Ashley usually kept her gun under the mattress on her side of the bed, but I might know where this change came from, and that would be the guy that Ashley had an affair with. He testified at trial and stated that Ashley carried her gun in her purse. 
And since we're already talking about this man, let's go ahead and segue into what we know about his and Ashley's affair. According to the Greeley Tribune, he and Ashley dated briefly in high school and reconnected years later on Facebook. They messaged each other, which turned into texts and calls, and eventually a fair man came over to Ashley's house when Tom wasn't there. Ashley told a fair man that she was going through a divorce because she thought Tom was cheating on her. Even though a fair man came to the house, it doesn't look like anything sexual happened, but Tom caught wind of something he didn't like and wound up catching the two in a parking lot of a hospital one night. The outlet reports that Tom squealed through the parking lot in a minivan full of kids and confronted Ashley. The two had a face-to-face screaming match while everyone put on their shocked faces, and then I guess the argument was just over. But while the argument was over, it didn't seem like the affair was. At some point, it looks like the affair did become physical, and then it got oddly petty. Tom obviously knew something was going on at some point, but according to the Daily Mail, Ashley proceeded to make a fake email account under a fair man's name and sent Tom some pretty shitty emails, like saying a fair man was better in bed than him. I can't wrap my mind around why this was done, but it was part of the trial, so I didn't need to put it in here, so there you go. A huge part of this trial came down to those ear witnesses on the night of the shooting. According to Denver 7, Nick testified that he was with two minors near a cracked window when he saw two people approach the Fallis house. He said that Tom was frantic, but the two people motioned with their hands to quiet down. 5280 reports that this is when Nick heard Tom say, oh my God, what have I done? I shot her. As we know, Nick says that he told the detective what he had heard that night, but says his statement never made it to the report. The detective claims that he never heard Nick say that, so as far as the jury goes, it came down to a he said, she said situation. But KDVR reports that Nick wasn't the only one who heard Tom confess that night. A former Weld County Sheriff's deputy claimed to hear Tom say, I can't believe I shot her. I can't believe she's dead. Why was a deputy from the same sheriff's office that Tom worked for on scene with the actual police department? Well, as it turns out, he was actually one of four. According to the outlet, Weld County deputies were telling the police department that they needed to bag Tom's hands to preserve evidence, you know, like gunshot residue, but we know that wasn't done. You would assume that all four deputies would have written reports, but zero, a total of zero reports from them were in Ashley's case file. One deputy did come forward to say that he thought he wrote a report, but it never made it into evidence. As for Chelsea, the one who made the call to Nick's mom that night and a very important ear witness, by the time the trial came around, she said she didn't remember saying that. Since we mentioned gunshot residue and the fact that Tom's hands were not bagged, let's get to the gunshot residue results. Much like the fingernail debacle, it was an absolute shit show when it comes to getting down to the bottom of the results. In trial footage shown on 2020, the defense states that Ashley had gunshot residue on both of her hands and Tom didn't have any. However, the Greeley Tribune reports that Tom had it on his face and shirts. When it comes to the 5280 article, which definitely feels like Tom would have had to have participated in, it states that Tom had a negligible amount on his hands. The presence of GSR on his face, shirts, and a negligible amount on his hands seem almost too specific to be incorrect, but if that trial footage from 2020 is the only reference to gunshot residue during that testimony, 
the jury would have heard that he had none on his hands. Frankly, the presence of GSR in this scenario would have been arguable in court either way. It was a confined space, and according to Tom, he had direct contact with the gunshot wound. The fact that there doesn't seem to be any clear answer across the board is what's throwing me off here, and that seems to be a common theme in this case. The trial continued, and the defense held strong to their argument that Ashley's death was not a homicide, it was a suicide. To back up their argument, they produced two suicide notes. And yeah, you would think that those might have been mentioned, I don't know, years ago, but no. Those didn't come into play until Ashley's case was reopened. You can imagine why people question the validity of those notes, but one of them was actually handwritten, and according to the Greeley Tribune, a detective authenticated the handwriting as being Ashley's. In the typed note, she apologized to Tom for his pain and that she couldn't go on living life failing as a wife and a mom. She asked him to please make sure you raise the kids to continue to go to the school we have chosen, which did seem a little odd considering they were young and would change schools several times throughout the years. And she didn't specifically name the school, but we only know what we know here. So let's keep going. What we do know is that one of these notes was authenticated as being written by Ashley and one was written five months prior to her death. That timeline seems to fall in line with the time frame in which Tom confronted Ashley and a fair man in that parking lot. Ashley's mental health was discussed over and over throughout this trial. And at times, I had secondary offendedness by the way it was presented. I am well aware that offendedness is not a word, but you get what I'm saying here. It was rough. They almost portrayed her as if she was this crazy, toxic person, which no one seemed to even suggest until it was time to battle it out in court. Obviously, if Tom is innocent and he's facing a murder charge, his attorney is going to do whatever they have to do in order to get him acquitted. But damn, it was rough. When it comes to crime scene analysis, blood spatter can tell you a lot, but in this trial, you had one expert testifying that the evidence supports Tom being on the other side of the room when Ashley was shot, and another testifying to the opposite. According to KDVR, the other expert believes the evidence showed that Tom was touching Ashley when the gun was fired, that even if it had only taken him one second to get across the room, her heart would have likely beat three times before he could get to her, and the blood just didn't seem to match up, that the blood on Tom's shirt was what he would have expected to see on the floor. Not mentioned here, though, seems to be the very distinct arterial spurt on the wall, but like we mentioned earlier in the episode, the lack of blood on the floor is surprising considering that it came from a fatal gunshot wound to the head. The closing arguments in this case honestly made me want to jump through the computer and argue it myself, but I'm holding on to hope that there was more to it than what's been shared with the public. The defense litigated the shit out of this case and the prosecution told the jury to go with their gut. We're talking about reasonable doubt here and they were told to go with their gut. This jury had one hell of a task ahead of them and I actually want you to pause this episode for a minute and really think about what you would have decided. Is it reasonable to believe that Tom killed his wife that night? Is it reasonable to believe that Ashley committed suicide? Take a moment and think about it then come back. The jury deliberated for less than three hours, and according to 48 Hours, one of those hours was a lunch break. When the judge read the verdict, you could have heard a pin drop, and as he told Tom that he was found not guilty, he had no reaction. 
His attorney seemed to tear up, but whatever was going through Tom's head was not shown on his face. Tom has gone on to live his life with his kids and Ashley's family has been left feeling like there wasn't any justice and now there never will be. Ashley's case has been one of the most frequently requested cases in big mad true crime history and I can absolutely see why. I'm interested to hear what all of you think happened considering everything you know now and whether or not you believe the jury got this right. Please let me know in the comments on social media. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Ashley's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern where we go live and talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you would like to hear covered, share with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We're officially at the end of this episode, which means that it is time to share a review that made my entire day. And this one's from a zoo. Oh my gosh. Okay. It says, I've been listening to Big Mad for a few years now. My best friend and I always laugh that Heather Ashley is like our third bestie. Facts, ma'am. The way she says what she wants and doesn't sugarcoat things is my favorite. Heather is an amazing podcaster and entertainer, if I might add. She always does the families and victims justice by presenting their cases and bringing attention to those that need it. Lots of love from the Cardin Zoo. Please tell me it's an actual zoo. Is it a zoo or is this, are we kidding? Because if it's a zoo, I want pictures. Okay. Anyway, you guys are the best. Okay, I love you. Bye.